0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall on call. Probably between 20 to 40% of infections are coming from people who are truly asymptomatic, meaning they will never develop symptoms.
1: who's appearing on the podcast for the second time. She's the Division Chief of Infectious Disease at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and she's a member of the IDSA Board of Directors. She's an excellent clinician, educator, and researcher. We're going to discuss many aspects of COVID-19 in this podcast, and particularly focus on three articles from the annals. Prevalence of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection from the June 3rd issue. Serodiagnostics for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome-Related Coronavirus 2 from the June 4th issue. And use of N95 surgical and cloth masks to prevent COVID-19 in healthcare and community settings, living practice points from the American College of Physicians that appeared on June 18th, 2020. We hope you enjoy and learn much from this podcast. Jeannie, thanks so much for joining us today. There's so many questions that our patients and our friends are asking about uh, COVID-19, and there are a number of really interesting articles in the Annals of Internal Medicine that are addressing these. I thought exploring this would be helpful for us to understand, as well as uh, be able to explain it to our patients and our friends. First thing is, there's a lot of confusion over what is asymptomatic COVID-19. And I know there was a narrative review in there. Maybe you could better help explain that.
0: Thank you so much, Bob. It's um, great to talk with you again. I think that this issue of asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic contagiousness, infectiousness, has bedeviled us since the very beginning. And, And we've known it's been an issue because as soon as we started hearing about the spread of the virus into Western Europe, we knew that many people reported no contact with people with symptoms as they got infected. So it was very, very clear there was a big denominator of people who were obviously a source of infection but weren't coming in explicitly complaining of symptoms. The Annals Narrative Review is really nice because it highlights several observational cohorts with varying degrees of uh, capacity to identify that presymptomatic or asymptomatic phase. And you know yourself even when you're asking people about symptoms before an acute illness, they can be vague or nonspecific, and sometimes people don't even remember. So there's a lot of uncertainty uh, with this. But back to the Annals Review, there are three cohorts in that paper that are described, an Italian cohort, an Icelandic cohort, and then a cohort in the U.S. Midwest, where we really do get some good information about this. And if you look at those taken together, and, and Dr. Fauci mentioned this uh, recently in a, in a um, televised press conference. I think people feel comfortable saying that probably between 20 to 40% of infections are coming from people who are truly asymptomatic, meaning they will never develop symptoms, or pre-symptomatic, meaning that they will develop symptoms in the next couple of days. I would say that we don't know what percentage of people will never get symptoms. And I can come back and talk a little bit about serology in a bit because Dr. Redfield made an important comment this week about the burden of disease as estimated by serology. But anyway, back to the pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic. So we don't know how many people truly never get symptoms. The presymptomatic phase, we know from some very nice studies that have looked at respiratory viral PCR in people right before they got sick that the quantity of respiratory virus that's shed in the one to two days before you get symptomatic is very high, it goes up very fast, and then those first couple of days of symptoms are really very infectious. So it's probably that four-day period that is extraordinarily infectious um, and we need to think about. You
1: know, on a previous podcast, I mentioned this idea of just taking people's temperatures to decide whether or not they could come into your restaurant you're sort of fooling yourself because only like 40% of the people have a fever. Um, that's right. That's both for asymptomatic and and even when, when they start to have symptoms, they don't all have fevers. I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, the CDC and serology. Uh, let me throw this out and you can talk about serology with this. The CDC recently uh, suggested that as many as 10 times as many people have had the virus as we have measured having the virus. They said something like 20 million people. Is this an extrapolation from serology? How good is serology and what does serology really mean? These are
0: incredibly difficult questions and we don't really know the answers. There are, as you know, a number of different serology tests. Some are better than others, but let's just assume for the the purpose of this conversation that we're talking about a decent serology test. The CDC's estimate that there are 10 times as many people infected as we have counted cases, is, is what they what Dr. Redfield said, is based on serologic surveys that are being done throughout the United States now. Um, and those data are coming in um, slowly, but, but surely. And the estimate, as you mentioned, is translates to about 24 million people having had the virus, or about five to 8% of the population. A couple of, Issues with that and caveats, issues, I would say, is that if that 8% of people have had the virus, that means 95 to 92% have not had the virus, which means as we are finding out brutally in these last couple of weeks, we have an extraordinarily vulnerable population. The vast majority of people have not yet been infected. So this concept of herd immunity um, that we have talked about a lot and has come up a lot I just want to remind people that if we have to rely on herd immunity for this, we're going to have a lot of pain uh, and a lot of people being sick and dying in order to get there. And it may take years. So that's the the first thing. The other challenge with immunity relates to a couple of papers that have come out in the last two weeks, uh, both in Nature, um, I believe. And they looked at, uh, one was in China Um, and I think that's probably the one that's most relevant for this conversation, they looked at the antibody response in people who did or did not develop symptoms or who had mild symptoms versus worse symptoms and more severe disease. And there's a suggestion in these data, as well as some others, that people who don't develop symptoms or who have milder disease don't develop as robust an antibody response and may not develop an antibody response at all, moreover, they may lose that antibody response earlier. And that brings up some very vexing questions. Uh, One, it brings up the question of how valid is a serologic survey in the population, because you can have false assurance that somebody was not infected when maybe they were infected and they just lost their antibody. The second thing that's very, very worrisome is it brings up big concerns for a vaccine. So if natural infection doesn't invoke natural immunity that's at least somewhat long-lasting, how are we going to do that with a vaccine? We'll really have to figure out what the difference is in the immune response to the virus in the natural setting versus whatever we put in a vaccine. So I guess I take the comments from the CDC to mean that there are a ton of people who've been infected, but not so many that we should start to get comfortable and say, you know, many of us are going to be immune to this. And second, we don't even know what immunity means to this virus. And we know we get infected with coronavirus, you know, pretty much on an annual basis, right? So we know that long-lasting uh, immunity to coronavirus is probably tough to achieve in the real world.
1: You know, I've seen some articles that say, well, this doesn't really measure whether the B cells and the T cells are activated and can produce antibody when rechallenged, I think there's a lot we don't know about the biology.
0: A lot we don't know about the biology. Um, you know, we did see something like this with MERS uh, and the antibody response to MERS that suggests that it is a coronavirus family thing, but we don't know very much. And, and actually, uh, it's interesting because Just some data from South Africa, literally, I think, in the last two days, have suggested that people with HIV may do worse with this virus, which does invoke, of course, T cell immunity. Um, And there may be some component of interplay there that we just don't understand.
1: So speaking of the CDC, uh, apparently, they have redefined the risk factors for uh, coronavirus and for death. And we know that there are a lot of different risk factors, but by redefining this, I think that it's really helpful. Maybe you could go over that uh, because there are a lot of people who really want to understand that.
0: Right. So the CDC did last week adjust its uh, description of risk factors, and I would encourage people to go to the CDC website. I go every day. It's really remarkable the resources that are there. It's it's those. I mean, they must have a uh, just a cadre of people working 24 hours a day to keep this thing up. I mean, there's just tons of guidance there and great data. The risk factors. There's a couple things I would emphasize. I mean, we've been hearing for a long time now that older age, cardiovascular disease, lung disease, renal disease. In particular, uh, were the the big ones with diabetes thrown in there? I would say not not exquisitely emphasized, but what the new guidance emphasizes is and based on accumulating data is that age is not so much a cutoff of 65, which is what they had before, but more a linear relationship. So the older you get the more your risk exponentially or actually linearly increases. So it's really a direct relationship. Uh, So that's important. The other thing that they brought up very strongly was obesity and and they specifically called out a BMI greater than 30. Um, That's important because it also relates to another thing they added, which was type two diabetes. So they're now singling out type two diabetes, So that to me says, with the obesity marker, that there is some derangement of metabolic function, just metabolic dysfunction, that is doing something to impair people's ability to handle this infection. Now, obesity can do a whole bunch of things, as of course you know, in addition to insulin resistance, it can reduce your lung capacity, your ventilatory capacity. We know that people who are obese are harder to to ventilate, um, harder to perfuse all those those alveoli. And so I think a lot of those factors are at play. That may be a big reason we're seeing so much um, of these consequences in states that have healthy indexes that are not so optimal. So for example, BMI and obesity, much more common where we live uh, in the deep south, uh, and that that could be a real problem. So I think it's important that it's type 2 diabetes, increased emphasis on the BMI, the age is linear, and then they also added a history of transplant, um, emphasizing again this immunomodulation as well as sickle cell disease, which we hadn't seen before. And that's an important one given the fact that black Americans are really bearing an outsized burden of mortality um, in in this infection. A final thing I'll just mention uh, for your annals listeners that's important for primary care is that we had thought in the initial few months of the epidemic that pregnant women were not going to be as much at risk as they are, for example, for influenza-related complications. That does not seem to be the case based on larger numbers. Very large data set that the CDC analyzed showed persuasively that, Pregnant women who had COVID were more likely to get admitted to the hospital and also more likely to require uh, mechanical ventilation than their non-COVID-infected pregnant counterparts. So I think that that's um, something that we're going to need to keep our our eyes on.
1: Another way that I've thought about these risk factors is most of the risk factors increase the uh, nonspecific inflammatory response uh, and perhaps that has something to do with the cytokine storm, that they're more likely to get the cytokine storm because of that. Is, uh, is Am I making that up or is that uh, sound uh, like part of the answer?
0: No, I, I think it's absolutely part of the answer. And remember, we have thought about this infection in three phases, the early phase, which is the uh, classic um, viral infection phase with fever, myalgias, the usual things. And then the pneumonia phase where you get um, the more invasive uh, look of a viral pneumonitis. And then that last phase, which is the ARDS, in hyperinflammatory cytokine storm phase. And in fact, It's worth mentioning that the RECOVER trial was published um, since we talked last time, and that's the study in the UK that looked at people randomized to dexamethasone versus no dexamethasone and showed a benefit of steroids in people who were severely hypoxic, couldn't maintain an O2 sat above 92% or ventilated. So what that says to me is that if you can target that immunomodulation towards that third phase of the cytokine storm, you probably can make an impact. And that's now made several guidance documents and, and thinking shift to the addition of steroids in those who have reached that part of their illness. I think earlier in the illness, the availability of specific antivirals is going to be much more critical, and you probably don't want to put people on steroids when they come to your office, for example, with what you suspect might be COVID. You would really like to have access to an oral antiviral, which we hope will be under study fairly soon.
1: I really love that formulation, and I've even read that giving dexamethasone prior to them being very sick actually makes it worse. It's, it's a recovery drug. And then there are a number of, of uh, immunomodulators that are being tested that seem to have some promising results. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the big thing in uh, July of uh, 2020, and that's masks. A lot of states are putting in mask uh, laws. Uh, our county that we, that we both live in has a mask law now. And there are three levels of when you should use masks. And I was actually part of, I'm part of the committee at uh, ACP that put out a guidance statement on masks. So let's talk about all three. Let's talk about just regular people who are going about their business. When do they need to use masks? And what kind of masks should they be using?
0: The masks in the community, I first would like to just say that there have been some more analyses published in the last month that I think buttress what we think we knew about masks in the community, that is that they worked. I mean, when you think about what we've experienced globally in the last six months and you look at the countries that have controlled this outbreak dramatically, that would be China, South Korea, Singapore in particular, the Asian countries where masks for respiratory illnesses have been part of the culture for quite a long time, there's no doubt in almost everybody's mind that these epidemics could not have been shut down there without the use of masks in the community, just because you have so many people going in and out of healthcare facilities. And I'll tell you that in our hospital right now in Birmingham, we have several dozen now employees who who have been infected uh, after we initiated universal masking in the hospital, which I know we're gonna come to, they've all been infected in the community. Um, No one is getting infected in the hospital. Why? Because we're wearing masks in the hospital universally and we're using precautions. So all those lines of evidence point to support that it works. And then just this week, there was a very nice A couple of different analyses by the IHME in Seattle and some other modeling agencies that suggest that the trajectory of the epidemic with mask use will be modified considerably, probably reduced by about 20 to 30% if masking becomes universally used. Um, And then the last piece is a nice paper in Health Affairs where they looked at a state-by-state effect based on when mandates went into place and strong, strong suggestions that there's a direct association. So when people say we don't know if they work, yeah, there hasn't been a randomized controlled trial, but I think you don't require that level of evidence uh, to say that this is really what we should be doing. So my guidance has really been if you are going to be out in the community and you're going to be closer than six feet, again, it's what we've been saying all along, then you should wear a mask. What does it need to be? Well, obviously, if you're going to be really close to someone, you want a mask that's going to not allow any exchange of respiratory uh, material. But for a six foot to three foot kind of, you know, a, a, a normal commerce that you would think about in a store or any place like that, really probably almost anything uh, short of a very sheer thing will work and the way you can tell is if you blow through a bandana or you blow through a tissue you can make the air come out you you know i just saw a great video uh, on twitter of somebody who was holding a candle and candle in front of their mask and blowing and different kinds of masks and you can see the flame obviously you know uh, is affected by your breathing and that's a that's a great way to visualize what will happen if you have a very thin mask and you breathe very hard or you cough at somebody who's two feet away probably not really going to help you so it's a gradation right of how strong that barrier is how thick that barrier is how forcefully you're expelling your breath and how close you are so that's why that six foot Summary statement is a little deceptive, but it's the easiest thing I think to get your head around. So I would wear a mask. I, I when I'm outside, I wear a good thick cotton mask. Um, um, I sometimes will wear a surgical mask if I have one, but but I have my regular cotton thick cotton mask. It's double layered, and um, I wash it pretty frequently Um, and remember when you take your mask off, you don't want to grab it in the front, you want to grab it behind and I've seen a lot of people pull the mask down like this over their face, um, you know, putting their fingers on the front of the mask and then pull it down to breathe through their nose, which is defeating the purpose entirely. So I guess I would say, masks works in the community, wear them when you're gonna be in close proximity. As I said before when we talked, I don't wear them when I'm walking around outside if I am not going to be talking to people. Uh, so it, you can have some reprieves, and I think that's important because it's exhausting to wear a mask all the time, right? We do wanna give people some latitude to uh, exercise the ability to breathe freely for sure.
1: The general rule that that I've been following is anytime I go into a store, a grocery store, or any oh, yeah. Place, that's an automatic mask. Yep.
0: Yeah. Inside. i
1: do not to get too close to anybody. I try to yep. keep six feet away, and I'm a little bit more patient than I ever was before. When I go outside and run, I don't wear a mask. I try not to be close to anybody, and I try to use that that distance. So uh, outside, it's masks are not as important, unless you were going to a cookout where you're going to be running people's faces, and then you really do need a mask. Is that is that right?
0: That's exactly right. And remember the complicated part about the cookout, I think we talked about this last time, is that there's a lot of touching. There's a lot of touching common utensils, common food, common places, common barbecue stuff. So that's the other thing, you know, with this fomite transmission, hand-to-hand transmission, we were really focused on that early on. Lots of hand sanitizer. Remember packages, all that stuff, talking about how long to let your packages sit. I think we have gradually come to realize it's, Probably possible to transmit with surfaces, but I don't think that's the main method that people are transmitting. Um, otherwise, I think we would be seeing a lot more transmission in settings where we, you know, people just can't be that compulsive right. about contact with surfaces. I mean, we have to hand things to each other uh, all the time in normal business. Right. Um, so I really think that I would, I would hazard a guess. It's a complete guess, but at least. 85 or 90% is probably all respiratory, which I think is where we're going right now.
1: Let's finish this up with masks for healthcare workers. When we say healthcare workers, I think it's important to recognize we're talking about physicians, nurses, janitorial services, dietary, everybody who's in the hospital. Yeah,
0: you know, people who work in the cafeteria, everybody, radiology, um, huge, um, You know, anybody who's doing any kind of things, people who, phlebotomists, so, the masking for healthcare workers, I think, is one thing that we have done mostly really well. There have been a lot of healthcare workers infected in the country, most of them were infected either early on before we realized how pervasively these were, this infection was spread asymptomatically and pre-symptomatically, or they're healthcare workers who are getting infected in the community. I would hazard to say that hospital-based outbreaks right now in hospitals who are really doing the right thing, which is universal masking of patients and providers that there's almost no transmission that, that healthcare workers are getting uh, from, from patients or from each other. Also, we have had some in-hospital spread, and this is an important point, with house staff in particular who wore their masks when they're seeing patients and doing their job, but when they go back to the break room and hang out with each other, they take their masks off. So that is a real issue, again, and it gets back to mask fatigue, you know, you go back to sit in the break room with four people, you're relatively close proximity, it's probably not six feet, everybody seems healthy, that is also a potential for transmission, and we've seen at least one cluster uh, like that. Um, at UAB. So I think, um, you know, for, for healthcare workers, for everybody in the hospital, again, wearing a mask, you probably don't need the N95 if you are not doing something involving aerosolization or respiratory procedures. So that that's another key thing in terms of prioritizing the types of PPE. And I'm very concerned about that. You know, we talked about that a lot, and then it kind of died down. And now that we're seeing Such an increase in cases. We haven't talked about the epidemiology, but you know, there were 41,000 cases in the United States yesterday. So we're up to 2.5 million and 885 people reported who died yesterday. So our deaths are up to 126,000. So, and the, and the lines, of course, the incidents in Texas, Florida, the whole Southeast are going crazy. California's seeing an uptick again. The Northwest is seeing an uptick. So I, I think, again, this concept of a second wave, I don't like that. I don't ever think we got rid of the first wave, but uh, some places clearly are seeing rechallenging. So I am worried about PPE, and I think we've got to really keep our eyes on
1: that. Jeannie, thank you so much. I think that you've given us a lot of great information that'll help us think through this better and advise our patients, our friends, our family, because everybody really wants to know. And uh, couldn't thank you more. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. We covered a number of topics uh, in this podcast. The first was the role of asymptomatic patients uh, in the spread and in counting the numbers of people who have SARS-CoV-19. They're significant numbers, maybe as high as 40 percent, and probably represent one of the major reasons that we need to use a mask. You cannot tell from someone's signs and symptoms whether or not they might be able to spread the virus to you. So, if everyone wears a mask, then there'll be less spread from either symptomatic or asymptomatic individuals to others. We talked a little bit about serodiagnostics, antibody testing, how uncertain antibody testing is, but also how it looks like we're only capturing about one out of 10 people who are infected with our current testing. And this is based on a number of antibody uh, testing uh, studies, and the CDC has documented that. And finally, we talked a lot about masks, about when you clearly should wear a mask, which is anytime you're inside a place of business. Uh, when you're outside, it's not as important unless you to be in close contact, for example, at a barbecue. And then we talked about the importance of masks in, for healthcare workers, and that includes everyone who works in the hospital, The use of N95 masks is really most important and people are gonna be very close and are more likely to have exposure to uh, both speech and uh, droplets. But wearing a mask for everyone in the hospital, including all patients, will really keep the very low percentage of healthcare workers who are now getting COVID-19 in the hospital at a very low number. We hope that this podcast has given you some good information to pass on to patients and family and uh, for your better understanding. Thank you so much for listening. For
0: more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.